live from the House of LeMay Makeup and Dressing Room. Here comes Amber. Stop what you're doing. Here comes Amber. She's just doing what she can. Here comes Amber. Cue the spotlight. Here comes Amber. You can't look away Ask her does she do it really nothing to it She's got that fun on the game If you have a party Or if you're feeling naughty Call up the house of the maid Hello, and welcome to the Amber Live interviews. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live. We want to remind you to subscribe to us both here and at youtube.com slash amberlive. You don't want to miss a moment of Amber LeMay, the Larry King of drag queens. There's so much more to the show than just the interviews that Amber does each week. We have hundreds of interviews, comedy sketches, songs, and more on YouTube that you can watch anytime. But... In the meantime, you can listen to the amazing interviews right here. Now enjoy this episode of Amber Live Interviews. In March, West Texas A&M University President Walter Wendler canceled a student drag show organized by several campus student clubs, including members of the Secular Student Alliance. In an email to all students, faculty, and staff, President Wendler cited his personal religious beliefs and evoked God and Creator multiple times in his justification for canceling the student event. He also falsely likened drag to blackface, claiming that the art form is misogynistic, divisive, and void of human dignity. Well, last month, Andrew Seidel, a constitutional lawyer and vice president of strategic communications for Americans United for Separation of Church and State, visited that university to give an address to support the students suing President Wendler and to demonstrate that drag is not threatening and detail the dangers of Christian nationalism. Here's a clip of his presentation. A harmless drag show? Not possible. When does drag really become harmful? When does it become a threat? Because I'm wearing a pink shirt and a pink tie right now. Is pink on a man a threat? What if I, a man, put on earrings? Is this a threat? What if I wear... <laughs> a rainbow feather bow? Am I a threat now? What about this? This is a skirt. I already have my pantyhose on. <laughs> Earrings, a boa, skirt, pantyhose, is this a threat? If so, how? And if not, let's do it for real. Okay. I have my high, these are my blue suede shoes. <laughs> Am I a threat now, President Wendler? What if I show a little more light? Is this threatening? How is this a threat? I gotta be honest, I don't feel much like a threat. I, I feel a little fabulous. <laughs> but I don't, I don't feel much like a threat. Drag is not a threat. Drag is a human constant. Since there have been clothes, there has been drag. 
As RuPaul likes to say, we are all born naked, the rest is just drag. You cannot have Shakespeare without sartorial swapping. Mary Wise of Windsor, the Merchant of Venice, As You Like It, Twelfth Night, Two Gentlemen of Verona, Cymbeline, The Taming of the Shrew. Elsewhere in literature, too, Achilles, Hercules, Huckleberry Finn, Eowyn in Lord of the Rings, I Am No Man. Mr. Rochester and Jane Eyre, Lord Byron's Don Juan, the Scarlet Pimpernel, Sherlock Holmes, War and Peace. Drag is not a threat. Drag is art. Drag is human. Drag is beautiful. But drag is a threat to the binary upon which white Christian nationalism depends. Are you straight or not? Are you white or not? Are you male or not? Are you conservative or not? Are you Christian or not? Anything more complicated than this binary threatens the narrow world, which reflects only their straight, white, conservative Christian patriarchy. The existence of humanity outside of that binary, let alone the equality of humanity outside of that binary, feels like a threat to them. Whatever these men say, you are right. And I will link arms and fight alongside you in drag if necessary. And we have the pleasure of talking with Andrew. Andrew, come on in. Hello. Hello there, Andrew. What a nice presentation. All right, so the the president canceled the drag show in March, and yet it took you to November to get down there and talk to him. What happened in between then? Well, as soon as the drag show was canceled, I, I actually heard from the Secular Student Alliance, from the national organization, I was immediately talking with them about what we could do to support these students. And I really wanted to sue, right? I'm a constitutional attorney. That, like, that is my hammer. Uh, I saw a nail sticking out. I wanted to sue this school on behalf of those students. Um, they had a lot of offers. Uh, and they, they did bring a lawsuit, not with me. And then they had summer break. Um, and it took a while to get the scheduling together. And they invited me down to speak about Christian nationalism. And, and they actually didn't know what I was planning. Uh, and I, I didn't tell them, you know, I, I wanted to offer them plausible and genuine deniability if this came back. Like, for instance, if the university tried to punish the students for inviting me and me dressing in drag, I wanted them to be able to credibly say, look, we didn't know this was going to happen. Um, I, I, I wanted to give them that protection. So I did speak about Christian nationalism and the threat that Christian nationalism poses to America. And that created a, a pretty big stir on campus. Um, but the, the dressing in semi-drag to challenge the president and to really give that community a win was something that they didn't know was going to happen. That was a lot of fun to be able to do for them. By the way, we've had Ken, Kevin Bowling, executive director of Secular mm -hmm. Student Alliance, on our show. So I, I know I'm familiar with that group. Kevin was down there with me. Kevin, Kevin was actually in the audience. He, and uh, he was really <laughs> supportive of me. I, I'm a big fan of Kevin. That's great. That Yes, we are too. So is this the first time you've gotten involved with the arguments about against drag? It is. Well, certainly it's the first time I've, I've done anything on stage regarding it. Yes. Um, I mean, it, it is... It, the, the the attempts to ban drag really are tied to Christian nationalism, which is really tied to the separation of churches. Can you define Christian nationalism, please? Yes, I would love to. Christian nationalism is the idea that the United States was founded as a Christian nation, that we are based on Judeo-Christian principles, whatever that vague phrase might mean. And most importantly, that we've strayed 
from that foundation, right? We've gotten away from our godly roots. And so they use the language of return, of getting back to that godly founding to justify all manner of hateful and, and downright evil public policy. Um, people may not remember, but the child separation policy at the border, uh, Jeff Sessions, then attorney general, justified that by pointing to Romans 13, right? That chapter of the Bible. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, then White House spokesperson, did the same thing. Um, the, the Muslim ban uh, that Trump instituted was, was a really good example of Christian nationalism infiltrating into public policy. But you're also seeing it in the country, in, uh, the, in the states and in the state legislatures that don't say gay bill is another good example. In Missouri, the abortion ban in Missouri says Almighty God is the author of life in the law, in the text of the law. And when they were passing it, they said things like being from the biblical side of it. And God doesn't give us a choice in this matter. So much of what we are seeing today, this awful, hateful, evil public policy can be tied back to Christian nationalism. And I think drag the, the drag bans and, and more the broader assault on the LGBT community really is based in and justified with Christian nationalism. Is it fear? Is it, it's not just hatred. There has to be a reason for hatred. Um, so why? Why? I mean, that that is the really big question. Like the, why are they, why are they on this crusade? Why, why are we seeing this rise of Christian nationalism? And it's, it's a couple of different things. Um, changing demographics is one of the answers, right? Because nuns, N-O-N-E-S, right? Not N-U-N-S. Nuns are on the rise because Americans are leaving religion behind. Uh, because we elected our first black president. We have black female vice president because of marriage equality. Because every day we are closer to racial and gender and LGBTQ equality. And I think more specifically, and I touched on this in the talk a little bit down there, is they are so accustomed to seeing a narrow world that reflects only their straight, white, conservative Christian patriarchy, that the existence, let alone the equality of anybody else, feels like a threat to them. So, so the answer to, to why is, it, this is a backlash against equality realized. Conservative white Christian Americans' status as the dominant group in our society is threatened and it has been for some time, right? They're losing the culture wars, which is this, I think, silly and sometimes harmful phrase that is meant to, to mask attacks on human rights. Um, their benighted ideas and ideology are unpopular. They're losing the privilege and the deference that they believe they are due. And we know that when a dominant group or caste in a society feels threatened, that it reacts or it overreacts by seeking ways to retain that status. And that, that is why we're seeing them turn to Christian nationalism. That's why we're seeing them turn to violent insurrection and attempting to overthrow free and fair elections, to tearing down democratic norms, to these so-called strongmen like Trump and DeSantis. And really we know that, let me put it this way, as we realize the aspirational values that are implicit in we the people and equal justice under law and these other founding maxims. As we recognize that humans are human and worthy of rights, conservative white Christian America is dying a slow demographic death and rebelling. They are raging against the dying of their privilege. And so they declared war. And, and, and that is white Christian nationalism. Didn't wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm going to fight this cause. Tell me about the progress of where you started and where and how you got to where you are today. 
Yeah, you know, I I I have never liked bullies. Um, I, I I was told by my mother very early on in life. I was taught that I have a duty to stand up for people who can't stand up for themselves, uh, and she loves to tell all these stories of me in grade school doing just that. And it it, it really has become it. That is who I am. And Christian nationalists are religious bullies, uh, and and they are abusing the power of these secular government offices to impose their personal religious beliefs on everybody else, and especially on marginalized communities, and to victimize those people. And I'm not, I am just not the kind of person who's going to sit by and let that happen. And when I decided I was going to go to law school, I wanted to use my law degree and my skills as a lawyer to stand up for those, to fight those same bullies. Uh, so so that is that is kind of the, the space that I come from. Um, I, and one of the things that I, I personally believe is that the separation of church and state connects to so many of the other issues that I care about. I mean, you've already heard me connect it to abortion, to LGBTQ rights, uh, to, I mean, book bans, that so much of what I care about ties back to that wall of separation between church and state and and having that wall that is tall and strong and robust and having government officials not abusing their power to impose their personal religion on others really it, it's almost a panacea right it, it's it's not the silver bullet that can fix everything but it's i think i think it is one of the closest things that we have um so by fighting for this this principle um and, and fighting for that that secular government I, i'm able to fight for so many of the other issues that I care about. We see all across the, the world where right-wing extremists are being elected or causing trouble in other countries. Are they considered Christian nationalists as well? Yeah, certainly some of them are. I mean, Hindu nationalism is a problem in uh, India, for instance. There, there are waves of religious nationalism that that are that exist around the world, um, and, and Christian nationalism is certainly one of the more popular ones. And in fact, you know, th this this wave of Christian nationalism that we are suffering right now is not the first that our country has survived. Uh, we have seen previous waves throughout American history. In my first book, The Founding Myth, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American, really touches on some of those previous waves. Um, you know, we, have, we saw a wave in the 1950s when In God We Trust was put on our coins, uh, was adopted as the national motto. We, we at The National Day of Prayer was adopted. The National Prayer Breakfast came into being. Um, they put a prayer room in the Capitol, right? Like all of those things happened in this, this one wave of Christian nationalism in the 1950s that really kind of tied to, to some of the McCarthyism that was going on as well. Uh, but we've seen previous waves throughout American history. There's another one with the Civil War. Um, uh, there was one in uh, pretty early on in the Republic. So, and, and each wave leaves behind kind of these relics uh, that m future waves can point to. So things like in God we trust, or under God being added to the Pledge of Allegiance. And then you have these future waves, like the wave of Christian nationalism we're suffering under right now, pointing back and say, see, we really are founded as a Christian country because of in God we trust, because of those disfiguring scars, when in fact we're not. Um, so it, it, it's, it's not new and it's not uniquely American, but it is in, Christian nationalism is an existential threat to the American Republic.
how did we survive back in the Civil War that that when it happened then and in the 50s, what stopped them or slowed them down? People standing up to them. Uh, I mean, that's really what what it is going to take. And, you know, we have to form these broad coalitions to relegate and push Christian nationalism back to the fringe whence it came. Uh, you know, it, 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 it is absolutely doable. We can defeat Christian nationalism, but we're, we're going to have to do it a, together. You know, so one of my friends, Chrissy Stroop, uh, said something that, that stuck with me. She said, shared values matter more than shared beliefs. And, and that is absolutely true. And shared values matter far more when we as a nation face an existential threat like white Christian nationalism. So, you know, my, my dream is, is to live in a country where the separation of church and state is valued by everyone, where we all understand that true religious freedom can only exist when there's a secular government. Um, you know, I, I want to live in a, a country where my nonprofit, you know, Americans United for Separation of Church and State is, is completely un, unnecessary. Um, it, it, our country's on fire, right? Our democracy isn't slipping away, it's being stolen. The, the Republic is being strangled. And those of us who share those values of equality and justice and truth and fairness, we have to come together to stop the arsonist and the thief and the murderer. And that means fighting white Christian nationalism. That f means fighting for an America where the separation of church and state is not just absolute, like JFK said, but valued. You're talking about how it's happening here in America amongst the politicians. Do you see an outside force from other countries? You know, a lot of people are blaming TikTok for um, uh, disseminating um, bad thoughts, uh, <laughs> as well as X and other stuff. Um, how do we stop that? I mean, I, I, if anything, America is exporting Christian nationalism rather than the reverse, right? I mean, there is, there is within this country, there is what we call it Americans United. We call it a billion dollar shadow network. Um, and there are these groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom and like First Liberty Institute and Liberty Council and the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty and sort of this Orwellian word salad. Of, of groups that have millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in their budgets. And their goal is to create a society where conservative white Christians, Christian men, heterosexual men, are the special favored class and everybody else is a second class citizen. Their, their goal is to change the law so that it protects those white Christian men, but doesn't bind them. And the law binds everybody else, but doesn't protect them. Right? That That is their true goal at the end of the day. And that is what all of the legal cases they bring are working towards, whether it's abortion or democracy or anti-LGBTQ bigotry or attacks on public education or whether or not they're exporting that. We know, for instance, ADF has international um, outposts uh, in Europe and in Africa, and, and they really try to push even more extreme policies in those foreign countries. Um, you know, some of the kill the gay bill, kill the gays bills in Africa have been traced back to some of these, these shadow network organizations here in the United States that are, that are pushing Christian nationalism here at home. And I mean, ADF is the biggest one of those. And, and, and to your larger point, you know, 
the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, now second in line for the presidency, worked at ADF, worked at the Alliance Defending Freedom for years. Um, and he worked at some of the other shadow network organizations too, including First Liberty Institute, and has been really tied in with the Family Research Council. Um, and then sort of the granddaddy of Christian nationalist disinformation, a guy named David Barton, um, who's responsible for a lot of the, the myths and the lies about the United States being founded as a Christian nation. Um, so so to, to sum all that up, I, I, I think... The problem of Christian nationalism is start, has started here at home. Um, and, and personally, I've found social media a really great tool for correcting a lot of that disinformation. Of course, more and more of it, uh, it, it's easy to spread disinformation and it's easy for it to spread on social media. But the really interesting thing about Christian nationalism is it, it's an entire identity that is based on disinformation, based on lies and myths. And that may, means that it is incredibly vulnerable because if, if you can correct that disinformation with, with truth, with reality, you destroy that identity. Um, and, and that's really why I wrote my first book, why I wrote The Founding Myth, to destroy all of the myths and the lies that, that underlie and that make up the Christian nationalist identity. What's behind it? Is it power? Is it money? I mean, they're they're grifting a lot of money. You're mm -hmm. talking about you know hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, yeah. What are they getting out of it? Yeah, I mean, the ADF's budget is now annual budget is now over a hundred million dollars. Um, but I mean, also also power is is one of them. And again, th think of that end goal. Here, here's another way to put their end goal: Do we have a country of the people for the people and by the people, or do we have a country? of the Christians, for the Christians, and by the Christians. And, and when I say Christians there, I'm of course talking about the, and I'll do my air quotes, the right kind of conservative Christian, right? Like it's not just any Christian. You gotta be straight, you gotta be white, you gotta be conservative, you gotta love the second amendment as much as you love Jesus, right? Like that kind of Christian is who they are trying to elevate and protect and, and steal this country for. Um, so, it, I mean, that is, I think, truly the end goal, and everything else feeds into that. There is a strange alliance with um, some of the billionaire business interests in this country. Um, I mean, you already mentioned X and Elon Musk. You know, there, there are some really strange bedfellows there. The Koch brothers. I mean, a lot of a lot of the funding for this Christian nationalist movement comes from these kind of conservative billionaire groups that have been working to shift the law uh, in their favor and have found Christian nationalism to be very convenient allies when it comes to seizing power. We saw people reacting in the, the mid uh, midterm elections. There was supposed to be mm -hmm. a big red wave, but it yeah. wasn't because people came out thanks to, uh, well, thanks to the, the taking away of Roe versus Wade that that prompted people. Um, do you see that interest or that activism waning, um, or do we need something else to uh, get us going in twenty twenty four? No, I, I don't see it waning really. Um, <clears throat> you know, the founding myth came out in twenty nineteen, and with that subtitle, why why Christian nationalism is un American, I had to spend a lot of time in 2019 explaining to people what Christian nationalism was and why it was a threat. And 
I have found that I do not have to do that anymore. This is a term and a movement that has entered the mainstream. Um, you know, I've been screaming about it and warning about it for years. Um, you know, I remember this talk I gave in, uh, I think it was maybe September of 2019, sometime in the fall of 2019. And I spoke to a room full of like 250 religion reporters, right? This is their beat. They are supposed to know about this. And I was on a panel um, called Christian Nationalism in the Age of Trump. And, and I, I, I began by saying that Christian nationalism is an existential threat to the American Republic. And nobody took it seriously. I mean, these are the people who are supposed to know better than anybody and, and be dialed into this kind of thing. Um, and, and now, now you're seeing story after story, not just about Mike Johnson's Christian nationalism, but about the threat Christian nationalism poses to American democracy, all of this. And it's finally like the country is finally waking up to this problem and to this threat in, in a very real way and, and connecting it to a lot of the other issues that they care about from abortion to education, to LGBTQ equality, to, to women's rights, you name it. I mean, a, a Christian nationalism is behind a lot of the regressive elements in our politics and in, in our society too. Um, so I, I don't think that the activism is waning. I think there's there's a thirst to recover what we've lost and to continue to, to push for more. And the, the fact of the matter is that um, Christian nationalists are not going to stop. There is no amount of power or privilege that is going to satisfy them. They will not stop. We have to stop them. Are you optimistic? I am. I am. Um, I'm nervous, um, but I but I am optimistic. Um, I, I do think. I do think the upcoming election is is very scary and terrifying and i hope everybody listening is doing all they can um, to support democracy and stand in the face of authoritarianism and fascism i mean donald trump won his first term in office because of christian nationalism he, he rode a wave of christian nationalism into the most powerful office in in the world um, and in fact, the, the best indicator of a Trump voter in the 2016 election, even, even beyond party, or, you know, for all we heard about white evangelicals voting for Trump, you know, 81% of them voted for Trump, a better indicator of a Trump voter than even that was believing that the United States was founded as a Christian nation. And that is his base. Um, and it's all the more reason for us to, to continue to fight back against it and push back against it. And it was also because his favorite book of the Bible is two Corinthians. You know, that, that was... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, look, like it's, it's such a good example, right? Like, I mean, think back to, to uh, June of 2020, right? When, when Trump had peaceful protesters gassed, beaten and brutalized with rubber bullets so that he could walk across Lafayette Park to stand in front of a church for a photo op with a Bible held upside down. So much of Christian nationalism is performative, right? The message behind that was that we are a Bible-believing, Bible-beating nation, and anybody who disagrees with it should be beaten, gassed, and brutalized, and especially if they happen to be protesting for black and brown people, right? I mean, that, it, it was it was like almost a perfect encapsulation of white Christian nationalism. It violated you know, all six 
rights protected in the First Amendment and, and hearkened back to some of the worst aspects and, and scenes in American history. And, and it is really just this perfect vignette of what white Christian nationalism in America is. Onward, Christian soldiers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned that you spoke in front of a panel. Uh, another panel you spoke in front of was the J6 committee. Oh, yeah. How did you get involved with that? You, um, after, so this is a little bit of a long story, but I, it, I think it's so, so important is I'm sure like everybody there, you remember where you were on January 6th and I was at home working, you know, and I had YouTube up on my phone, MSNBC live watching the insurrectionists storm into the Senate. And there was an MSNBC reporter up on the balcony filming and in, I, they were, took, did a shot into the well of the Senate and I saw one of the protesters come into the room and they were carrying a Christian flag, right? Carrying the Christian flag on the floor of the US Senate, onward Christian soldiers, right? I mean, it, it was, and at that moment, I realized how important it was going to be to tell the world of the role that Christian nationalism played in the January 6th insurrection. Um, and so from that day, I started cataloging it, um, you know, reading everything I could, watching every video I could, talking to photographers who were there, going through all the footage that existed, going through all the photos that popped up. And initially I was going to write, um, uh, it was going to be a, an epilogue for the founding myth um, before my second book came out, American Crusade. So, um, and I was talking with my publisher and they were like, you have about, uh, you know, a couple hundred words for your epilogue. And I said, oh no, I need like 30,000 words. And that's insane for people who don't know, like a novel's maybe like 70 or 90,000 words. So like I, <laughs> I wanted half a novel to go on to the, as my epilogue and my publisher was like, yeah, no, we're not giving you that. Um, so I, ha I had all this extra stuff that I wanted to say and all of this, this extra stuff that was out there. So I reached out to my friend, Amanda Tyler. And Amanda Tyler is, um, she's a, a clergy person. She runs Christians Against Christian Nationalism and um, the Baptist, uh, BJC, the Baptist Joint Center for Religious Liberty, um, and very much in favor of separation of church and state, very much in favor of fighting Christian nationalism. And she and I had worked together on a few things. And I said, Amanda, what do you think about getting some of our friends together, some of the experts we know, and doing a report on the role that Christian nationalism played in the January 6th insurrection. She loved the idea, immediately was on board, provided a ton of, of logistical support and helped get this group of experts together with me. So it was Amanda, myself, Catherine Stewart, who's written the book, The Power Worshippers that people may have heard of, Sam Perry and Andrew Whitehead, who wrote um, the first sociological study of this modern wave of Christian nationalism called Taking America Back for God, Jamar Tisby, who wrote uh, The Color of Compromise and some other really fantastic books on Christian nationalism, and, and Thea Butler, who, write, who wrote White Evangelical Racism. Um, right, so all these experts who contributed to this report, and we each kind of wrote our own sections, and my sections focused on the lead up to January 6th and what happened that day and all of the, the very, very clear evidence for Christian nationalism that day. And what, what we learned was that Christian nationalism created the permission structure 
that gave the insurrectionists the moral and mental license that they needed to attack our government and attempt to overturn a free and fair election. And, and the evidence for this is overwhelming. I mean, it's, it's indisputable. It's so clear. The attackers told us loudly and repeatedly what they believed and why it justified the attack. I mean, they, they, they were, they told us about their Christian nationalism. And the point we were trying to make is that we ought to listen to them because if we ignore the ideology that justified this attack in their minds, we are inviting future attacks. Again, because Christian nationalism is an ex existential threat to the American Republic. So we put together this report, we published it, um, and uh, the committee, uh, it actually aroused congressional interest. So when we launched the report, um, we heard from a few members of Congress who uh, asked us questions. Some of them even came to the launch of the report. Um, and then uh, we were each asked, um, all of the, each of the contributors was asked by the January 6th committee to submit an expert report to the committee in writing, um, expert testimony. So we, we all did that. Uh, basically, we took our sections of the report and expanded them, um, added to them and supplemented them and gave those to the committee. Um, and I got a couple citations in it, but if people have read that report, they know that by and large, um, unfortunately, it did not include as the the role that Christian nationalism played, which there we have some suspicions as to why that ha happened, but I'm not going to air them publicly, unfortunately. I cannot spill that tea. Okay. <laughs> so were you asked to come in person or just submit the, the written work? Just, we just, just this was still height of COVID. So um, they were, they were doing as much um, virtually as they could. So it was just, it was a, a lot of it was phone calls, emails, and then submitting a written expert testimony. So tell us who you talked to um, and some of their stories. Oh, I mean, the, the person that I'm, that I remember the most speaking to um, <clears throat> for, for the, the investigation and for the report was, I think people probably remember this. Uh, if you, if you saw that, that New Yorker footage from the day of, of the insurrection, and if you remember seeing um, the, the guy with the horns and the, oh, the shaman. Yes, the QAnon shaman, Jake Angley. He has actually got a few few names, but yes, doing the and prayer. He's, he's running for something in Arizona, Congress or governor or something. He's running yeah. for office. Yeah. So if you if you remember that and you remember seeing that prayer in the U.S. Senate, they prayed to Jesus, right? So the videographer that took that footage is a guy named Luke Mogelson. He's he's a war correspondent, um, and he shot the viral New Yorker footage that day. Um, and, and I spoke with him quite a bit, um, and he's provided me with a lot of footage that hasn't, hasn't seen the light of day other, you know, the, some of the committee members and stuff have it, but, but most other folks have not seen it. And we were talking and I was explaining the report and he, he was very sympathetic. And I, I, I include his quote in the report because he said, um, he said something like this. He said, the Christianity was one of the surprises to me covering this stuff and that it's been hugely underestimated he said and he said the christian nationalism that you talk about was the driving and unifying force of all of the disparate players there that day it's really and then the, the final quote that i think is pretty close to word for word is it's really the christianity that ties it all together 
right? So, so that's the guy who was literally there on the ground with these people saying Christian nationalism was the unifying force from all of these different groups uh, on the ground that day. And I mean, it really was, you know, I mean, you, you, joked about onward Christian soldiers, but the, you know, there's video of them singing the battle hymn of the Republic, glory, glory, hallelujah, in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol as some of them are holding Bibles up just after they got done having a little prayer circle. Um, I mean, it really was, the, there's videos of them telling us after the fact, like explicitly telling us that they were there to claim the building for Jesus. Um, you know, the, the the prayer that the QAnon shaman gave in the Senate was about patriotism and Jesus and restoring the nation. And he ended it in Jesus's name. And then there I was able to identify a number of the people who participated in that prayer. Um, and one of those guys gave an interview later and he talked about the prayer and he said, quote, we consecrated it to Jesus. He means the, the, the Senate building. Right. We consecrated it to Jesus. That to me is the ultimate statement of where we are in this movement. Right. He's right. He's right. That is the ultimate statement. There was another one, um, another one of the praying insurrectionists in that same prayer said, I just wanted to get inside the building so that I could plead the blood of Jesus over it. And then he spends 40 minutes recounting every action that he took. And every one of those he believes was directed by God. You have there's another insurrectionist um, who, as far as I know, was not part of the prayer, um, but she took a video, selfie video of herself after the assault, and she's sipping a beer and she's telling her social media's social media followers. She says, "To me, God and country are tied. They're one and the same. We were founded as a Christian country, and we see how far we have come from that. We are a godly country. We're founded on godly principles, right? And and think back to so." earlier in our conversation, the idea that we're a Christian country and that we've slipped from that, those founding principles, that is the central tenet of Christian nationalism. So, I mean, you know, even aside from the crosses and the flags and the signs that were so very, very clear, I think a lot of, you know, they wrote in God we trust on the gallows that they had there that day, right? Like it was all very, very clear, but they also told us about this. Um, and that, that report is available for free. Um, uh, if you go to the Baptist Joint Committee, uh, website, you can get a copy of it, BJC online, or just type in, you know, January 6th Christian nationalism report, it should be the first thing that pops up. Um, and, and anybody can go read it and, and, and see the evidence for themselves. Well, Andrew, fascinating story that you tell, um, frightening, frightening story, and fascinating. Yes, it is. And but I, I, I agree with you, there is optimism, we just have to share the word, you know, speak louder than they do, mm -hmm. and uh, gather our own soldiers to, to fight them. So thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Amber Live interviews. Remember to subscribe to us so you don't miss a single minute of the fun. And remember, it is your support that keeps us going. You can make a donation through this podcast by using our Venmo at RJD Pro, or by visiting us at amberlive.tv and clicking on the Support Amber Live button. Thank you.